Speaking is all very well and good, but if no one is listening, then I guess the question is, what's the point? Or similarly, with this speaker here, I can play music on it, but if I've got the volume turned down to zero, as it presently is, what's the use? It's electricity flowing, but there's no net result. Nothing is actually happening. Last week, John pointed out to us that we're in the middle of a bit of a, a theme in Luke's Gospel. Um, if you remember all the way back, chapter 9 was the transfiguration and this declaration from the heavens saying that this Jesus is my son, whom I have chosen, listen to him. There was speaking, there was listening. Very soon afterwards, Jesus sends out the 72 to do the things that he was doing to heal the sick, to cast out demons, to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. And he reassured them with these words, whoever listens to you, listens to me. But whoever rejects you, rejects me. And whoever rejects me is rejecting the one who sent me. Jesus says, go, speak. I pray that they would listen to you. But if they don't listen, then, then they're ignoring me, in essence. There's speaking going on and listening once again. Then there was the story of Mary and Martha that we looked at a couple of weeks ago and their contrasting attitudes and their contrasting actions in the presence of Jesus. And it all hinges around this wonderful description of Mary, who is said to be one, sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he had to say. Then, just to prove my point, the Lord's Prayer. Chapter 11, teach us how to pray. And Jesus gives words. He gives a heart attitude. He gives voice to a people who don't just want to listen to God's voice, but want to be able to speak and respond to him. And how wonderful it is to know that when we speak to our Father in heaven, he hears us. He listens. He responds. And then last week, conclusion of the passage that John was preaching from. You have this woman who speaks out boldly and loudly and she says, blessed is the mother who gave birth to you and nurses you. And Jesus' response is, no, no. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and listen to it, obey it, take heed to what they have heard. Do you get the point that there's a lot of talking, speaking going on in Luke's gospel? That's the theme and the presumption is that there will be hearing and listening and responding and acting to it. Make no mistake, there is music being pushed into this speaker. But until I touch that volume, none of us will hear it at all. I hope this morning we will hear three lessons. A lesson for those who don't yet believe. A lesson for those who want others to believe. And lastly, a lesson for those of us who have already believed. A lesson for those who don't yet believe. A lesson for those who want others to believe. And a lesson for those of us who have already believed. So we need to have this idea of speaking, of listening, of hearing in our minds when we come to today's passage to Luke Chapter 11, 
verse 29. There's this growing promise, this weight, this sense that God is a God who speaks. And there's a growing call and a responsibility on us to respond, to have the volume turned up, to have eyes to see and ears to listen. And in verse 29, we read that the crowds around Jesus are increasing. There's no surprise there, is there? Everywhere he turns, people want to catch another glimpse of him. They want to hear a snippet of something that he's got to say. But as the crowd swells, so does Jesus' heart for those who need him. And so too, I would say, does his frustration with those who are so, so close, who are seeing so much, who are hearing so much, but are yet still so far away from faith in him and faith in the Father. And so, once more, Jesus speaks. This is what he says. This generation is an evil generation. It demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so also the Son of Man, he will become a sign to this generation. Or another example gives Jesus, the Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And look, something greater than Solomon is here now. The men of Nineveh who responded will stand up at the judgment of this generation and condemn it because they repented at Jonah's preaching. And look, let's make no mistake about it, something greater than Jonah is here. Let's be honest, that is one of Jesus' speeches that very rarely makes it onto bookmarks or uh, embroideries. Um, it's the sort of thing which sounds a little bit harsh, a little bit judgmental that we perhaps would shy away for, and perhaps might sound a little bit contradictory to you. Because up until this point, Jesus has not been shy of showing us a sign or two. Luke and the other gospel authors have collected together dozens and dozens of signs, miracles, works, wonders, things that Jesus has done for us to see and to respond to, haven't they? We think about the stories of Jesus turning water into wine or, or cleansing lepers or raising the dead or providing food or walking on water or calming storms or casting out legions of demons. Well, in fact, in Luke's gospel, when John the Baptist's disciples came and asked the question, are you really the Messiah? What did Jesus say in response? He said, don't ask me for an answer. Look at the things that I've already done. Look at the signs that are right in front of you. Report to John, he said, what you have seen. The blind receiving sight, the lame walking, those with leprosy cleansed, the deaf hearing, the dead raised, the good news being proclaimed. Signs, 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 signs. So let's be clear, Jesus is not against living out who he is for everyone to see. That's what a sign is, isn't it? It's him just being himself, being the eternal son taken on flesh, being the rescuer, the redeemer, the promised one, the chosen one, in plain sight for everyone to see. He's not afraid of doing that. He's not against doing that. He's not, he's not against signs. But here's what's going on. 
here's what's got Jesus so despairing that no matter how much Jesus does, no matter how much he says, no matter how much he demonstrates who he really is, these folks will always want a little bit more. For some reason, faith in him, faith in the Father who has sent him, is always just a little bit further down the line. There's just one more piece of evidence that they'll need and they'll be satisfied. The only problem is it's never, ever enough. Come back to my speaker here playing music. It's like, when we turn the sound up, putting earplugs in and saying, as I turn it up to one and two, can't hear it, need to turn it louder, as the music gets turned up again, covering our ears and saying, can't hear it, need it to be turned up louder, turning it up even louder and then having to shout over the top of it, can't hear it, need to turn it up even louder. The way that I act there isn't in line with the truth of the situation, is it? In fact, I'm doing things, I am living things out that will mean that I will never hear, that it will never be loud enough, even when it's turned up to 11. It has this appearance, the hallmarks of listening, but it's a smoke screen. It's just a show. And that's why Jesus uses these two examples from history to demonstrate the point. The first is Jonah and the Ninevites. You can read all about Jonah and the Ninevites by looking for the book in the Old Testament, near the end of the Old Testament, called Jonah. Let me give you a tip. If you want to read it, find it in the table of contents first, because it's only a page or maybe two pages in your Bible. But it's a short story. Let me make it a short story, even shorter. Jonah is a prophet, and he's commanded by God to go and preach to the city Nineveh. It's a great city, we're told, the wickedness of which has gone up to God. But Jonah says, no, I don't want to, to hear, I don't want to listen. And, and more than just staying put and ignoring God, it's quite comedic actually, he literally runs in the other direction. He literally flees as far away as he thinks that he can get so that he doesn't have to obey God. He ends up not getting very far, in the belly of a fish for a few days and then he spewed back up onto land and God comes again and commands him once more exactly the same thing go and preach to this great city the wickedness of which has come up before the Lord and there are lots of reasons from the story to think that when Jonah does go he only goes begrudgingly and with gritted teeth if you're reading the story you can imagine that he goes and he warns the Ninevites 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. It's not much of a sermon. There's not much in there about the goodness, the graciousness, the kindness, the mercy of God. There's no instruction to repent or anything like that. There's just Jonah, bedraggled, begrudging, whispering, hinting at the fact that, that the God of Israel is the true God and he will judge unless these people turn and repent. And what happens next is nothing short of a miracle. In spite of this, what should we call him, a reluctant preacher, the people respond, the, the city repents. He says the Ninevites believed God. 
a fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning, not his offer of hope, his warning, reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, he took off his royal robes, he covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. It's repentance imagery, it's repentance action. And he made this issue, this proclamation across the city. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any people or even animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Don't let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? Because Jonah's not really told us, but who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. It's an amazing story of a people who would hear just a whisper of God's grace and God's mercy in the midst of a slightly louder chat about God's justice and his holiness. They'd heard this rumour and they completely and utterly turned from their old ways and turned to trust in the living God. There was no great mountain of evidence. There was no escalation of plagues against the city or a series of prophets who became louder and more fierce in their declarations. There was just Jonah. Bedraggled from his time in the belly of the big fish. Begrudging Jonah. And they responded. They heard and they saw. The second example is the Queen of the South, or as we might know her, the Queen of Sheba. Perhaps it's an even better story. It's found in 2 Chronicles chapter 9. I'm just going to read you a chunk of that because it really is wonderful to listen to. When the Queen of Sheba heard of Solomon's fame, she came to Jerusalem to test him, test him with hard questions. And arriving with a very great caravan with camels carrying spices, large quantities of gold and precious stone, she came to Solomon and talked with him about all that she had on her mind. Solomon answered all of her questions. Nothing was too hard for him to explain to her. When the queen of Sheba saw the wisdom of Solomon, as well as the palace that he had built and the food on his table, the seating of his officials, the attending servants in their robes, the cupbearers, the burnt offerings that he made in the temple. She was overwhelmed. And this is what she said to the king. The report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your, your wisdom, it's true. Actually, I didn't believe what they said to me until I came and I saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half of the greatness of your wisdom was even told to me. You far exceed the report that I had heard. How happy your people must be. How happy your officials must be to continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Praise be to the Lord your God who is delighted in you and placed you on his throne as king, as ruler, because of the love of your God, for Israel and his desire to uphold them forever. He has made you king over them to maintain justice and righteousness. And then she goes on to just give all that stuff she carried with her as a great, extravagant gift to Solomon. Think about that story again. What had she heard? She'd heard the faintest whisper. 
she'd heard this rumor, this report that she confesses she didn't even believe when she heard it. She doubted it herself. And yet she responded. She got together in anticipation this great wealth, this um, sum of spices and gold and jewel, the likes of which had never been seen in Israel before. And she traveled, traveled vast distances from the ends of the earth to go and find out for herself, just on the off chance that the rumor was true. And when she arrived, it surpassed her wildest dreams. So why does Jesus give us these two examples? Because they demonstrate to us, they demonstrate to those who are always after a little bit more. Just one more thing, just one more thing, just one more thing, constantly, constantly, constantly. That perhaps we aren't being as reasonable and as rational as we're pretending to be. That these two groups, the Ninevites and the uh, Queen of Sheba, in their own wonderful ways, when they heard so comparatively little, they responded so wonderfully. They'd heard perhaps the music turned up to one, it's just a faint song. It's just a whisper, but they hear it. They crane even closer to hear even more. And here surrounding Jesus is this great thought throng of people and they've got it turned up to 10 and 11. And they claim that there's no sound coming out of the speaker at all. They claim that they need it turned up just that little bit more. Not because there's no music going in, not because Jesus hasn't demonstrated truly who he is, because they're working hard not to listen. And so Jesus switches pictures now at this point. He's given those examples from history and now he gives them an image. And he shifts really from thinking about hearing and listening and responding to seeing. But he's making exactly the same point. No one lights a lamp and puts it in the cellar or under a basket, but on a lampstand so that those who come in may see its light. Your eye is a lamp of the body. When your eye is, is healthy, when it's good, the whole body can be filled with light. But when it's bad, your whole body is filled with darkness. There's a complete absence of light. Take care then that the light that is in you isn't darkness. If your whole body is full of light, with no part of darkness in it, it will be entirely illuminated, just as if a lamp was shining its light on you. In Jesus' picture here, the eye is the gateway. The eye is the, the doorkeeper keeper to you and to I. It's at the point at which we say, yes, that can come in, or no, I want nothing more to do with it. And I think we're supposed to see this idea of taking Jesus, the light of the world, and hiding him under a basket, putting it in a cellar, as absolutely absurd. But that's what Jesus is saying is happening when we keep on demanding just a little bit more. When we keep pushing faith just that little bit further away. It's as good as saying, all that you've done up until now, Jesus, is worth Nothing. All that you've shown us is not enough. Truthfully, if that's the case, it will never be enough. The lamp under the basket will never shine its light. And he gives this warning, I don't know whether you've picked it out, that the light can be full on shining on us, but we can 
choose to ignore it. We can, if you like, draw the blinds so that when the sun has risen in the morning, our rooms stay dark. And we close the curtains so that the light doesn't come in. And then we begin to live and to think that, well, life is supposed to be lived in the darkness, in the murk. And any suggestion that there's a greater light out there is utter nonsense. Just think about how deluded that is. But we convince ourselves that there's nothing more to be seen. And so the three lessons, a lesson for those who are yet to believe, a lesson for those who want others to believe, and a lesson for those who have already believed. A lesson for those who are yet to believe. Is your scepticism about Jesus, is your thirst and your quest for answers as genuine and as reasonable as you think? Scepticism as a concept has changed, it's developed over the years. Nowadays, to be a sceptic is, is to have that natural default instinct to doubt. That no matter what is presented to you, you will always take an A on the side of doubt. And did you know scepticism originally was, was more about a willingness to go on a journey, a willingness to search and to explore and to find answers. And not to remain in a place of unbelief and disbelief, but a place of belief. That's what scepticism was originally. And I think here we have people gathering around Jesus, asking for a sign as if all that he's done is never enough. And they think that they're being sceptics. They think, you know, we're being reasonable now. If you, if you give us a sign, then we'll believe. But really, they're not. I wonder for those who are listening this morning and are yet to believe whether your scepticism, your, your quest, your journey for, for answers to your question is as genuine and as reasonable as you think. Jesus gives these two examples from history, Nineveh and Sheba, and says, do you know what? The threshold actually is so, so low. And in Jesus, we have so, so much. I guess it's wonderful that you're here listening, that this is part of demonstrating that you want to know the truth about Jesus, about yourself, about life, the world and God and how it all fits together. That's a good step. I'd encourage you to, to assess, assess genuinely the level of um, proof that you think you need in order to have faith. Let me tell you that those people you know, people like me, people in our church who have turned and trusted in Jesus, yes, we've seen the signs. Yes, we've thought about it. We're not, we're not blindly following Jesus, ignorantly following Jesus. We're a people who have looked and seen and tasted that God is good and Jesus is true. We've all come to this point, though, where we've had to say, am I going to believe it or not? We've stood at the edge of the water and we've asked the question, is it warm enough to get in? Someone's dipped a thermometer in and said, yeah, it's warm enough. Is it warm enough to get in? And someone who's already in the water said, yeah, it's warm enough. And we've got to that point where we really just had to actually put our toe in. We've had to jump in ourselves. And now we know without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is the one, that he God amongst us, living and dying and rising again for us, is 
the answer. You know, there's something that you can do. It's to keep on asking questions, but not questions that never have an end. Questions that lead to a point of decision about Jesus. Can I recommend to you, in particular, the book of a man called Lee Strobel. It's called The Case for Christ. You can actually watch a film about it on Amazon Prime, uh, I believe. Um, Lee Strobel was a journalist whose wife became a Christian and he hated that. He hated the idea that she was going to change, that she had fallen for this deception, for this lie. And so he set out asking his questions in order to disprove the truthfulness of Christianity. The only thing is, each and every step of the way, as he investigated genuinely further, looking for answers, it all seemed to be true to him. And in the end, the weight, the evidence was all too much and he became a Christian and has now committed his life to helping other peoples to see the truth that is in Jesus. Can I commend that book to you? If you need me to get you a copy, come and ask me. I'd love to get hold of it and to, to walk through it and talk through it with you. But for those of you who are yet to believe, don't be like the crowd here who ultimately will be condemned, Jesus says. By saying, you need to reach this bar before we believe because, do you know what? We keep on pushing the bar that little bit higher. Sometimes we get to the point where we need to just dip our toe in. Sometimes we need to get to the point where we just jump in, where we taste and we see and we recognise that Christ is the truth. Maybe you're not quite there yet. I appreciate that. Then I'd love, like I said, to walk through the case for Christ by Louis Strobel with you. But ask that question of your questions. When will enough be enough? I've heard so many times of people saying, if God showed up and was in front of me, then I'd believe. Well, listen to the testimony of those people who met with Jesus. He was there and they disbelieved. And yet, Nineveh, Queen of Sheba, they believed. They responded. A lesson to those who are yet to believe. A lesson to those who want others to believe. Do you know, your Christian friend, you, you're desperate, not just to know Jesus yourself, but for others to know him more too, aren't you? And sometimes it can feel like there's this weight on each and every one of us to explain everything. Not just to explain the ins and outs of the gospel, of who Jesus is and, and how his death works uh, for our gain and our advantage and the rules and the regulations about living as a Christian when we've come to faith. We don't just feel the weight of all of that, the burden of that, but all these questions that exist out there. What about science? What about other religions? What about suffering? What about the current state of the world and these principalities and these powers and so on and so on and so on? And we worry and we work ourselves into such a state because we think in order for it to be a people who share our faith, we've got to have all that sorted. Well, there's a lesson for us here, isn't there? Those of us who want others to believe that the burden of proof is not nearly nearly as high as we think it is that friends family neighbors colleagues might have their genuine questions and yes we want to have genuine answers but faith comes when people encounter jesus not when their objections have been battered away faith comes when hope is held out 
to Nineveh and Sheba that this might just be true and uh, and hope is investigated that's where faith comes so the lesson I want to want to take away today for those of us who want others to believe is that we would just unburden ourselves because when we burden ourselves with all this weight all this burden all this setting of the bar what ends up happening is we don't share Jesus at all if I can't share him to the utmost if I can't answer every single question then I'll keep my mouth shut can I encourage you two things first of all be the sort of person who spreads rumors about Jesus be the sort of person who may not feel comfortable and confident in turning this up to 11 but is willing to turn it up to one is willing to share and to be open and to answer as much as you can and as much as you know and just to drop Jesus into conversation John Perry was sharing a little tip with me this week that that he's been trying to practice more and more when he goes places like the barbers and what have you. That whenever the conversation turns to something that Jesus comments on, he just says, oh yeah, Jesus had something to say about that. Without the necessity of maybe explaining everything that Jesus said or why Jesus is so important for each and every person, but just to nudge them along. Just to drop this idea out there that Jesus is one who has something to say about our lives and the world that we live in. Be the sorts of people who spread rumours about Jesus. Sometimes we can be afraid of it sounding trite when we share about our lives and how God has kept us, how God has convinced us, how God has revealed himself to us in Jesus. Don't worry about sounding trite spread rumours because cities, whole cities like Nineveh can come to faith through such a small whisper. The second thing is pray. Pray for fertile soil because this is the issue. It's not because the evidence hasn't been presented, it's because our hearts are too hard so often to hear it and to accept it and to, to move and to follow it where it points to Jesus. Jesus himself says that we're to be people who pray for fertile soil and then to go and to be people who scatter, who who spread rumours, who whisper even about Jesus. A lesson to those who want others to believe. Spread rumours, pray for fertile, fertile soil. And then lastly, a lesson for those of us who have already believed. This has got nothing to do with us. You know, I've already followed the signs, I've already followed the evidence, and I've already heard and listened and responded and trusted in Jesus. Well done. But honestly, we believe, don't we, that the Christian life isn't just hearing that call once and responding, but it's learning to listen to God and to follow our Father and to follow in the footsteps of Jesus day by day by day until we die or until Christ comes again, whichever happens first. And sometimes we can get ourselves into the situation where we act and live as if God hasn't spoken. 
as if we've heard that call to follow Christ, but now to hear his voice, we need some special experience. We need some wonderful confirmation about how we should live our lives or what we should go about doing. We demand a sign. We demand maybe an audible voice in our quiet times as we're praying or a vision as we go to sleep. And the Lord grants those things. But if we want to hear God's voice, if we want to know where this path is leading us, how we should live our lives, what we should do, then we need to be a people in God's word. It never ceases to amaze me how many people want a new voice, a fresh vision, a new revelation about where God wants us to be when we have the entire Bible. We have all of that. God speaking to us, directing us, calling us, commanding us. Saying to us, come and listen and respond. But we're not really listening. We've put the earplugs in. Talk a little louder, God. He's turned the volume up. We cover our ears. Talk a little louder, God. But we're not really listening. Jesus says, oh, it would be better for you to be like the Nineveh who have heard the whisper and seek to respond. Brothers and sisters, we don't need, although the God Lord may grant us further word and more wisdom, we need to come and to listen to the word that he has already given us. That should take priority in our lives when we're seeking after God. How do we expect to learn? How do we expect to listen? How do we expect to hear? when we've turned the volume all the way down, when we've closed the covers of our Bible, when we've put it on the shelf and left it there to gather dust. God has spoken. He has given us that sign. There is more than enough there for us to listen and to respond. God brings it to us. He empowers us with his spirit to see it and to hear it afresh day by day by day. Let's not be a people who have closed it and turned the volume down and are ignoring it. The lesson for us who have already believed is to still have open ears to what God has already said. So a lesson for those who are yet to believe. Question, is the bar really that high? Ask questions genuinely. Maybe walk along that path with Lee Strobel or someone else who already knows Jesus. A lesson for those who want others to believe Unburden yourself. Be a people who spread rumours about Jesus and pray for fertile soil. And a lesson for those of us who have already believed. Don't think that we've heard his voice in one place once and that's it. We need to go elsewhere to get new instructions. Keep coming back because Christ has revealed himself. Christ has revealed God so fully to us. If only we would have ears to hear and eyes to see in his word.